1940, coming off the heels of the interwar years, FDR and everybody realizes that you know, war is on the horizon. We've come to a point where there's discussion about the interest in naval aviation, particularly with carriers, and the Navy itself really hasn't caught up to the idea of what, or really grasp what, what's going to be needed. No one knows at this time. But if you look at the numbers in, in 1940, you know, about a year before Pearl Harbor, the Navy's sitting at just 7,000 aviation personnel within its ranks. Amongst fighter aircrafts for carriers, we only have 245. That's all the Navy owns and six large carriers. And that's all we have in the inventory. Well, once FDR says, no, here's the allocation for more aircraft, jumps to 3,000, and then he kicks it up to 10,000 and then follows with a 15,000 increase. The Bureau and Big Navy realizes, okay, we're in a bit of a pinch here. We need pilots. And then John Towers and the Bureau realizes that, okay, we got pilots, we've got aircraft coming down the line, but now we need people to work on it. So he has to put into a place and figure out how that's going to happen. How are you going to train those people? And what are you going to train them in? And so through this process, within three years, he goes from having 7,000 to 144,000. And that's just from December of 1940 to December of 1943. If you just pull out fighter aircraft, so your F4F Wildcats and your F6F Hellcats are pretty much your, your main fighters at that time, we go from 245, 2,245. So an increase of 2,000 planes. Aircraft carriers, we maintain about seven of the larger carriers. Escort carriers are sitting at that time of 19, and light carriers are at five. So that's 25 smaller carriers and go from six to over 30 aircraft. This is a, a major shift just in just in a few years in what the Navy is able to do and what it's doing with personnel as well as aircraft. And so in three years, the Navy increases the number of personnel assigned to you know, the aviation wing by a factor of more than 20. And accompanying with that is all the equipment. So you have the, the carriers, you have the planes, right? And that's its own separate discussion on the production miracle that kicked into gear with all the latent industrial production capability that got essentially reactivated at the end of the Great Depression. But your book, Sustaining the Carrier War, the deployment of U.S. naval air power to the Pacific, focuses primarily on the enlisted rates and the absolute explosion in the number of aircraft maintainers of all types that happened in between 1940 and the 1943-1944 at flood tide. And what was what were the very first challenge that the Bureau of Aeronautics and the Navy in general encountered when trying to suddenly field literally more than an order of magnitude more sailors? Yeah, that's a great question, Chase. The biggest problem was really how are we going to train these men, eventually women, to to work on airplanes. Because before this, during the interwar years, coming out of naval aviation was very, very small in World War II. During the interwar years, most of the training was just kind of done on the job. And it was done through the naval aircraft factories where we were actually building our own airplanes. The idea that you're gonna have to you know, make this enormous investment in people that have a set of skilled labor abilities is, how do you formalize that? So that was really, I think, the first challenge that the Bureau saw was like, we've been doing pretty good over the last few years with just kind of having things handled in-house and, you know, the old crusty chief there teaching the you know, brand new recruit on, you know, how to change an engine, how to fix a propeller, et cetera. 
But now we, we need to formalize it. And so that's, that's where a bureau decides that there needs to be an establishment of formal trades, so vocational schools throughout the country. We had kind of small parts and small pieces of that throughout, but there wasn't much in the way of formalization. So that is where they, they really make an investment in that. Was that it was that basically just a legacy of a slow pace of operations, not a lot of funding for flights. Obviously, nothing's getting shot actively during the interwar years. And so you can afford to just have pretty lackadaisical pace of teaching in OJT. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we only had five carriers for most of the time. And one of them being the Langley, which held very few aircraft. So the only thing we were doing during that time frame was the war game you know, through the Naval War College. And so, again, airplanes were, they were working. They weren't shot out of the sky. It's, we had sufficient numbers to do what we needed to do. And we had some, really looking at seven to eight, maybe nine at the most maintainers, enlisted maintainers per airplane. So if you know, run the numbers on what's on the carrier versus what the Navy had, met the mark. There was really mm-hmm. no need because no one, I don't think anyone really fathomed what was coming down. How, how many airplanes and how many ships were going to be needed. It sort of, it surprised everybody how many airplanes we could make. And, and the same thing with tanks and sort of every production target that we set during World War II. It was just, yeah, we're going to set this absurd thing. And then you know, to, quite frankly, everybody's surprise, we exceeded that. And so, you know, A, there were more planes than we planned on. But was there a pre-war plan to increase this? Or was it truly nobody had thought about how do we increase the number of enlisted aviation technicians in the event of war, in which presumably we're going to be buying a lot more airplanes? Well, there was an individual by the name of George Murray. He was a captain at the time working for Towers. Uh, and he was actually there before Towers at the Bureau of Aeronautics. And, and Murray, who goes on actually to be an admiral in the war, he he saw that there could be a problem. And it was mainly with the administration side within the Bureau of handling the influx of enlisted in aviation. So as people were starting to enlist and, and go through boot camp and so forth, he had a very small number of people actually working for him in the bureau in DC. And they started to become overwhelmed just as the kind of the, the swelling of, of numbers. We hadn't been attacked yet, but there was the idea that, okay, something's going on over in Europe and patriotism is starting to surge. You know, everyone's been it's a peaceful environment for the last 20 years. And so he did make an effort to say, hey, boss, I think we have a problem looming on the horizon and I need a bigger staff here and I need a bigger staff as far as how we're going to train. And at the time, Powers replied in specifically a memo, we're good, stand pat. The current operations situation is fine as far as numbers we have. So he was not willing to to increase. Mitchell was his deputy at the time and they both Mm -hmm. agreed that things were good as they were. You know, it's the old adage of a change is the mother of all evils, particularly in a, in a bureaucracy. And so uh, Murray Murray's one that points out that there's a problem. And it was eventually Towers came to the agreement, probably a bit on the on the down low and, and didn't want to admit it, that he overlooked a, an issue that was uh, became very, very important. He actually began. And, and so what was the timing of this, right? So two Ocean Navy Act in July of 1940 was basically this massive reaction to the Germans conquering France, and suddenly everyone said, oh shit, right? Like, we've got a, we have a problem on our hands, potentially, especially if Britain falls, which at the time looked 
very plausibly imminent, in which case the threat of invasion of the homeland would be you know, very real. And so the Two Ocean Navy Act in 1940 dramatically, dramatically increased the size of the Navy. And was that when the planning started or did that happen a little bit later? Yes, yes. That was a direct shot across the bow to Towers. As FDR said, hey, we're going to increase the size of our Navy. Along with that came, well, when we're doing that, we're going to increase the size of the aviation Navy as well. So with more carriers, more planes, and also you're going to need more planes on along the coastline, your patrol aircraft, right? The PDYs and so forth. And so this, that all plays, you know, my book doesn't get into a whole lot of the actual maintenance on those particular aircraft. It's focused more on the carrier, but all of those maintainers, they're all going to the same schools. And so how do these schools change, right? Previously we had OJT. What's, what's the end state? The end state is a formalized program where they actually develop almost, you could call them junior colleges. You could call them small universities in some cases with the size of them. And the big push is to standardize, standardize the training, standardize the classroom environment, standardize the actual, you know, length of schooling and and find qualified instructors to actually teach sailors you know, how to work on airplanes. So the, the schools became really what we see today. You know, it, it's a you have classroom environments, but you have the hands on environment hangar where they can actually go and work on different models and mock-ups and then and then they would so they'd have classroom and then they'd have the actual hands-on practical if the labs if you will and then most of these schools were actually at training bases so you had training aircraft out on the flight line that the maintenance students would then go out and actually do the work on those trainers and so they could actually put it into practice what they were learning in classrooms that that took a while because one of the sort of the funnier things when reading your book was yeah, the absolute scarcity of planes because every single possible naval aviation resource is being thrown against Japan in those, you know, the first year or so of the Pacific War, when it was very, certainly in the first six months prior to Midway, certainly looked like Japanese were uh, winning very, very decisively. And then even after that, it was not a uh, clear-cut thing. And and so there essentially were no planes, right, available. It was a you know, giant auditoriums, one guy in the front with some spare parts, effectively, right? Yeah, wherever he could find them. I mean, as if one if one crashed, you know, hey, they we'll take it. You know, we have to no, no, we'll take the parts. We'll take the parts, and that's that's what they did. You know, send out a couple old uh, old salts to a crash site because the crashes obviously were much more common then than they are now. And they would bring it back on you know back of a truck or, or something or a tractor, and hey, this is this is good for us. We'll take it. Great, you know, it's broken, and there's a lot of training value in repairing this thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. and Do so. It's, yeah, another really sort of interesting thing, uh, you know, was the sort of industry collaboration. There was a lot of back and forth going on. Like, how did that evolve? And then is that still going on today? You know, naval aviation far better than yeah. uh, than I do. Is that still an active program? Because it seems as if in World War II, based on your writing, that it was, uh, you know, quite productive. Yeah, World War II, yeah, we saw numbers more so than we'll ever see. But the, the, the collaboration was, uh, it, it took a little while to get started. Right. You know, the, if you look at the numbers as far as what the Navy's getting for planes, it, it's a little bit of a slow start because I think everyone, just like in the shipping shipping world, you know, everyone's kind of caught on their heels with this. one. And but there is a, a push to initially during the interwar years. And one, most of the Navy's airplanes were made by the Navy. We're really actually up, up through the mid 20s. Then they start to 
to outsource to civilian companies. But for a good part of early naval aviation, it was the naval aircraft factory that would actually make planes. And many of the flying boats and so forth were made by them. As it starts to get outsourced to civilian owned companies and contractors, then you know, there's not a huge demand by the Navy for a lot of airplanes. So it's kind of a catch as catch can and you come off the line and, and they're there and they're good enough for what they need. By the time the balloon goes up after Pearl Harbor, the Navy has realized that, you know, we need more than what we have here. So the civilian world, the defense contracting world is, is, is there and ready with open arms and open hands, really checkbook for, for, their, for their wallet. Yeah, yeah, open and, pockets. Yeah, sure, we'll make as many as you need. What's funny, like Grumman in particular is, is one of the prime contractors for fighters picking. The saying was that Grumman won the war for us in terms of the Pacific War and Naval Air War on, on carriers because they were the, the primary fighter that helped Wildcats and the Hellcats where Grumman made aircraft. But the other aircraft out there as well, it was, it was multiple companies. And what they did was the demand was so high that they wouldn't, you know, the prime, say it was a um, a contractor that makes a, a torpedo bomb, right? So they started to, instead of having that contractor make everything themselves, they would start to subcontract out. So different companies, whether it's um, wheels, propellers, airlines. Yeah, and this is very much the model for how every car company, every defense contractor works today. You know, Boeing and you know, all their stuff has layers of subcontractors because you know, things have just gotten so complex from an engineering perspective. To have one company manage it is just an impossible task, right? There's there's so many specifications and complications to it that you know one company could not possibly keep on top of all that. But that that wasn't a thing really, I guess, before World War II. No, no, I don't I don't really believe it was. No, but and, and it was the, the number of airplanes, for example, Grumman's, the Hellcats, the contract for the Hellcat, which is signed in 43, Grumman commits to delivering 500 airplanes a month in 1944. So for, an, for a year straight, they are producing 500 fighters on their flight line up in New York and delivering it to the Navy. So the amount of manpower that's needed to do that, as, as well as other uh, assets, other subcontractors. You know, it, it becomes kind of model for what we see today. And I mean, look at any of the airplanes now. Yes, uh, McDonnell Douglas, big ones. And, you know, if I Grumman in there with the Tomcats and, and all the other big planes that we see in Boeing and so forth. But there are many different subcontractors within the Lockheed Martins and so forth. They bring in to make different parts, weapon systems and so forth. So I think it becomes a bit of a model for the way the modern defense contractor, at least in terms of aviation, but probably other. Uh, for for other everything. <laughs> yeah. So there's another interesting program where small groups of petty officers essentially went to the aircraft factories to do some on-the-ground training and, and really got some, some pretty innovative and high-quality training, sort of a master's class in naval aviation maintenance as the war went on, right? Yes. Yes. And it was, it actually became part of the, the contract for the airplanes by these companies like Goodyear, Lockheed, and Douglas would actually, um, when the Navy sent a, sent a signal that, hey, we need to understand how to, how to fix these planes and these parts. And so they figured out a way how to kind of write that into the contract. So yes, we're gonna provide you this 
aircraft or the, these parts are aircraft, and we're also going to provide an amount or a level of uh, actual instruction on how to use, use it because everything is, is fairly new at this time. And so this became, for lack of a better word, the aircraft contractor training program. There, there was no official word for it, but the Navy had to actually go and get approval from their paymaster general, Bureau of Aeronautics, that actually this could be included in the contracts. This is all contracting stuff we see now at Naval Air Systems Command or Naval Sea Systems Man, as they when you buy stuff from the contractors, they're going to say, all right, this is how you use it as well. So 1942, there were 30 different factories, 30 different companies that were giving regular instruction to, like you said, petty officers, more senior, probably, you know, first first class petty officers, maybe chiefs, as they were rolling new aircraft off the line. And they would develop the syllabi. So they would kind of send basically planes as well as the actual technical books, the manuals, when they would send a product to the Navy. So that was where we started to see the influx of all these manuals and textbooks that then the Navy was taking back to the, the vocational or the trade schools and teaching your brand new airmen that are just coming out of Great Lakes and training boot camp. So if I were to say there's one through line of the massive increase and sort of the Navy's policy in that time is increasing specialization. And that sort of happened in a couple of ways. One that was sailors increasingly specialized in this type of maintenance or this type of aircraft in some way, right? And roles got more specialized. But two was locations got more specialized. And especially as we, the United States Navy, had you know a little bit of spare aircraft capacity, there was a triage system for damage, which allowed carriers to carry more fighting aircraft and, and sort of shunt the the ones that are going to take a little bit longer to fix off to sort of secondary and shore-based and you know, specialized repair ships. Yeah. And that gave us a pretty big fighting advantage over the Japanese who didn't have that program, right? Absolutely. So I'm back up a little bit. As we began to get all these new kind of manuals and so forth and, and new training techniques from the contract, the idea was that we need to standardizing the way we train our, our technicians. And so that's what the Bureau begins to do with the trade schools. And as it gets standardized, they're becoming better working on airplanes, maintaining them and keeping them up at up status. But as you're saying, the, the more airplanes that show up, the less we have to worry about that because things go from, we maybe we don't need to fix this because we have new ones sitting on the beach ready to be delivered as, as needed to whichever carrier task force. So that, that changes at the end of the war, that changes the way we do business in terms of aviation maintenance. And yeah, it really does, I think, have an effect on the Japanese because they just can't keep up. with it. Yes, we outfought them, but we also outbuilt them, just like in, in the shipping world. You know, there's, there's no other country in, I think, really in, in history has been able to produce such an industrial behemoth as as we did during during the second war and that translates both in the surface as well as subsurface and in the aviation side of the house i, I think i read a statistic where the ford motor company at its peak was producing more industrial output than italy um sort of just a, a small measure of the amount of you know industrial no. badly we outclassed the axis and um you know japan obviously a little bit bigger than italy but uh, i bet that ford and gm together were outproducing the entire nation of Japan. So you call this aspect of we don't need to repair everything, the throwaway culture, and there's a couple aspects to that. 
the carrier air service units, the aviation repair and overhaul units. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, those are interesting. As we get into kind of the middle of the war, right? We change, we go through 1942 where we have Coral Sea and you have Midway, you know, and then things kind of get quiet, right? So we're in a very defensive posture back in that period. And then things kind of go quiet until we get into Guadalcanal at the end of 1942. And once we kind of cross that bridge, we start this push towards actually the island hopping campaign and the idea that we're actually going to go more on the offensive. Well, if you're going to do that in the Pacific, it's a little bit bigger than the Atlantic. And you need to kind of figure out how you're going to employ all these carrier task forces with all these airplanes very, very far from the west coast of the United States or Honolulu in particular. And so the idea is why don't we set up these four operating bases, if you will, but they're not really there for combat purposes. They're there for maintenance and repair and staging areas for the aviation side of the, of the Navy. And so a CASU was they called a carrier aircraft servicing. So these are about probably about 70 of them scattered throughout the Pacific by the end of the war. And they're a small unit, somewhere around 500 or so people. And their job really was to prepare aircraft that were shipped over from the factories to, say, a, a smaller carrier, an escort carrier, and then delivered into the area. Oftentimes, still, you know, maybe wrapped up or kind of broken down into parts. And they would put them together, and then they would do a functional check flight, and they line them up on the, their makeshift runways and, and have them ready to go when the carriers needed a refresh or lost a couple of planes in combat, a few more. And so these small units were dotted throughout there and it was a pretty austere life for the men that were out there and the sailors out there working on it. But yeah, they had a huge impact on the actual readiness or ability of the aircraft fleets. The AROU, and that's the Aviation Repair and Overhaul Units, that was put into place a little bit later than the CASUs. And what became of that was until probably late 43, 44, if there was an engine overhaul or a major overhaul that needed to be done in an airplane, so it hit its number of flight hours. And at this point, preventative maintenance said that, okay, we need to do an overhaul, break everything down, clean it, go through it, replace parts that are worn. You know, that, that would have to happen. Oftentimes that would happen on the carriers. Well, what happens when you do that? to an airplane in the carrier. It's down, right? You can't fly it. And it's going to be multiple hours, multiple days that that plane is unflyable. And so the overhauls were taking up precious time as well as you know, your labor, people. And so the Bureau decides that we need to make a change in this. Maybe we need to do something different. And so they established these units. And these are big units. We're talking 1,500 to 2,000 people. They really only, I think, five are established during the war at some of the bigger islands like Koala Gene, Guam, and so forth. And these units are designed really just to do engine overhauls and, and major repairs. So now we could shift all that maintenance that was being done, the repair maintenance on the carriers to these, these bases that are in the islands. And so now on the carriers, all you had to do was kind of your normal, we call it daily and turnaround inspections. Basically, it's your Jiffy Lube type of service, right? Or and then that in turn, effectively, it increased the number of fightable planes that you had on the carrier by two, three, four. And that's a non-trivial increase in fighting power compared to you know, Japan, who did not have those. Yeah, we're looking 
you know, your readiness rates, right? So your up aircraft, we call them up or down aircraft or, or fully mission capable, mission capable, FMC, MC, or non-mission capable. And so the, the number of mission capable and fully mission capable aircraft jump up to the point by the end of the war, it's a constant 88 to 90% readiness, which is eight when nine out of every 10 airplanes are fully ready to fly at all times. I mean, and that, in terms of like, that is, that's where you want to be when you're fully And the only way you can do that is if you really, if you have brand new airplanes, cycle, cycle out. And the Navy plan, they had a plan where they knew that they had figured out that every time a carrier task force deploys, goes into combat, it's going to be an average of 16 planes per air group per month rotated in. So an air group would be like the three or four, maybe five squadrons on the carrier. And so you're looking at 90 to 100 planes on your, your larger Essex class carriers. And so throughout the deployment, the average was 16 planes, 16 to 18 planes a month being delivered out to that aircraft carrier. And the expectation is those other, you know, that was because of either combat losses or maintenance losses or other losses, which is probably more so like pilot error or, you know, something that's not related to combat or an actual maintenance failure. So that that's from my reading and my research, I think that is one of the, the major uh, things that really did the Japanese in. You couldn't keep up with that. And mm-hmm. Nobody can. And so, you know, Stan, as we talk about specialization, there was a lot of specialization that happened within the ratings. As the complexity of the overall naval aviation maintenance system went up, number of aircraft, complexity of aircraft, number and types of ships, and all sorts of other modifications, you know, special mission modifications that were happening. How did that affect the uh, ratings in particular? Well, it's a good question because if you're enlisted in 1941, say you came in the fleet just before Pearl Harbor, in December of 1941, and you wanted to be in the aviation community, and you wanted to work on airplanes or work around airplanes. So you had the choice, really, of five ratings. You could be an aviation machinist mate, you could be an aviation metalsmith, an aviation ordnanceman, an aerographer, another name for weather guesser, or a photographer. So you could work on the planes, you could work on the parts of the planes, you could work on the bombs, the guns, or you could work around them. And that was it. Those are the five ratings that you could you could actually wear in your screen. As the amount of work needed and the, the amount of airplanes and the different types of uh, types of airplanes actually show up in technology increases, there needs to be more specialization within the actual labor force. So by 1945, the Secretary of Navy had authorized a way of actually identifying who was an expert in what. So you no longer were just a general aviation machinist mate. Now you could be a machinist mate with the designation of carburetor mechanic or a designation of flight mechanic, or a designation of hydraulic mechanic, instrument, propeller, gas turbine. You had new ratings of aviation electricians, or aviation radio technician. You're really looking at going from five different ratings to over 20, maybe 25 different ratings that were not really in existence before the war. So now, I mean, there's so many more opportunities to develop a specific skill set that this this concept of skilled labor within a, a modern war machine that the Navy was really kind of shows its true colors and shows its worth. Because now you could specifically just say, you know, Petty Officer Smith, oh, he's he's the guy who knows the carburetors. So let's bring him up and fix, you know, something's not right. Rather than just saying, okay, just put a machinist mate on it. 
So that was, I think, something that's really interesting to see how we how we kind of did things. Now we've we have similar today in terms of our our specializations, but it doesn't get worn on their sleeve specifically. It's all inside the records. You get special qualifications. So basically, NECs. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so what other innovations happened during World War II, specifically in the aviation maintenance field, that are sort of carried over today? Well, back at in Home Guard, back in CONUS, at the schools, the, the trade schools became one standardized unit. The realization that we've got multiple schools scattered throughout the country, all kind of doing their own little thing in terms of how they're training maintainers and teaching them how to work on airplanes. Well, you know, it was it was similar, but there was there wasn't a whole lot of standardization, and so the bureau realizes that this this is could be a problem, and so they but it also becomes an issue where there it's becoming too big for the Bureau of Aeronautics itself to actually run this program. So what they decide to do is establish what's called the Naval Aviation Technical Training Committee, or NATTC. And that's established in, on September 11th, 1942, where that becomes the overarching control of all aviation training across the country. And so that's still the same command that does that today. It manages all of our technical training for the side of the house. 1943 is where we start to see major standardization and a major output of trained technicians. So every four to six months, they're graduating another, you know, that, that's the cycle, that's the time frame of, of your actual uh, schooling. That's one thing we see that comes out of the war. The second is the way we do maintenance as far as policies and instructions. Uh, another a program that I talked about in there, uh, which becomes the Integrated Aviation Maintenance Material Supply Program, or the, for short, we're just going to call it the Integrated Maintenance Plan, is put into practice at the end of the war. And this is when the number of aircraft that are coming off the industry lines from Grumman and so forth are to the point where we're trying to figure out when to cycle them in. When is the right time to actually move an airplane off of a carrier and put a new one on? You know, how how long do we actually keep these planes? And so the integrated maintenance plan really is a way of start to track that, determine what factors are going to be included in the decision of like, okay, this plane has reached its service life and now it's time to bring another one on board. It's also is going to determine, you know, what the need is for spare parts. And maybe we don't need a lot of spare parts. And this is what this program actually does that teaches kind of Navy that at this point in the war, it's probably more cost effective to just have more planes rather than, you know, a whole bunch of spare parts. Because the spare parts, one, they cost money, but they also take time to pull old parts off and to replace a new one. So that the Navy's like, you know what, I think it's just easier to swap out the whole plane. It's a much faster process and you know, right away you're, you're back up and running. So now that obviously does not stay with the Navy into today. We don't have that luxury. It would be nice, at least we have to fix things. But that does give us that, that program, integrated maintenance program, really transitions into which is the Naval Aviation Maintenance Program, which we use really today to determine phases and of maintenance and what the reporting periods are and how we track hours on airplanes and, and so forth. So those are two big 
kind of takeaways or things that are very long lasting in and so how how did our practices compare to we talked a little bit about the japanese but how did that compare to other peer air forces to the germans you know quasi peer the italians the japanese the british the soviets how much did, was there convergent evolution on the best way to manage various sea and land based air forces how much was it not convergent how much was it divergent right well good question that's kind of my sure would be nice if i spoke japanese to look at some of their archives but in, from what i just in my general knowledge and what I've seen, the Japanese, they did have training programs. They did have plans for how to conduct maintenance and so forth, but not to the level that we did. I, I don't really have a whole lot of hard data on that. Now, I do know that our training schools at the NATTC schools, that we did train allied maintainers. So whether that was British or French uh, or Australian, we actually would train some of their enlisted on maintenance and send them back to their fleets to actually do the, you know, in turn to train their people. So there was a bit of, of crosstalk there. And obviously the British started with naval aviation on carriers before we did in World War One. So we learned some of our initial early development in the, in the world of carrier aviation from you know, watching what they did. But as you know, they're investment in in that program really does not does not become uh significant at all and really in, in comparison to to what we do that they, they obviously do have a good number of carriers and they are uh, proficient in it but not to the level that we were and as formalized as as we were they did have their own training programs they did have their own technical schools but i just think size and scope we we outdid them just because of the way we were operating yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so all of these, uh, and it's sort of a feat of planning slash good luck, perhaps, perhaps a dash of both, the number of carriers, number of planes, number of aviation technicians, number of pilots, number of support facilities, all more or less converged well to create a, a pretty well-functioning system. Were there any parts that were significantly overbalanced in retrospect or underbalanced that you know, we should have put more effort into or did not no i think i think we started off slow right really in in terms of really everything as far as numbers of, of people numbers of airplanes number of carriers again it was those things where we just didn't see it coming and and so if i if i could you know go back and change things if i were in charge yeah that's i would have started much earlier in the interwar years mid-30s on, on actually developing and uh different plans for training people as well as for producing carriers and so forth but again that's the armchair quarterback or the armchair admiral and all of us as historians what i what i think that you can really take from from the book and research is you know not that i try to discount the importance of the aircraft carrier or the airplanes or the pilots and, and the, or the admirals and, and the plans and what was done but we just don't really recognize the boots on the ground or the, the boots on the deck plates, you know, that are in the hangar doing the work. If, if you look at kind of numbers as far as when we start to produce carriers in large quantities, when we start to produce airplanes in large quantities, it all kind of coincides with when we start to produce trained technicians. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming pilots as well. But in the book, I, I put together some graphs and you can see 
if you trace those numbers and you, you trace them against where we start producing trained technicians and sending them to the fleet, all those numbers converge about the same time, which is late 1943, really take off and, and hit their peak by mid-44. And if you're a student of the war, you, you know that that's really when the nail starts to go into the coffin for the Japanese. We really start to make inroads and go on the offensive. And, and the end is very near for the Japanese in the Pacific in terms of the, uh, the naval war at that time. And, and so yet that's, they fought on. <laughs> yeah, they continue, right? They, yeah, but they fought on, but <laughs> hanging by a thread, right? You know, I mean, we, we start to go on the offensive and things go much, much better for us uh, throughout that time frame. So I think that what has kind of been overlooked, not in, not really, not intentionally at all, but is this the influence that skilled labor and those maintainers had on the air war in the Pacific. As a pilot, yeah. and I couldn't agree more. Right? Not- yeah, I mean, it's it's a unglamorous, doesn't make a good movie, rarely gets written about. But I think that your book is it's the first that I've ever read on the nitty gritty of maintenance of a particular system. In this case, you know, sort of the naval aviation system. Obviously, one of those things that, like, when I saw the title of the book, I was like, oh god, like, duh, right? Like, of course, this is important, but this isn't something that. That I'd ever, you know, read a book out or, you know, sought out a book for, there's probably needs to be an equivalent book on, you know, tank maintenance or truck maintenance or something like that in in Europe. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that book exists, but, you know, it's something that has never come across my desk. And and so I know virtually nothing about it because it is swamped by the very good and very entertaining and and very worthy. But, uh, you know, there's many versions of Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors or something like that. Right. And, you know, great, great book, right? Highly recommended. But, you know, if you're looking for some diversity and sort of a greater understanding of a lot of crucially important, I would say, aspect of how militaries function and how, in this case, how World War II naval aviation functioned, yeah, I I really recommend uh, Sustaining the Carrier War, the deployment of U.S. naval air power to the Pacific by Stan Fisher. He is currently a professor at the Naval Academy. He is a naval aviator with over 26 years of experience and over 2,500 flight hours as a Navy pilot, primarily with Seahawk helicopters. And uh, truly, uh, yeah, this is a book that goes into a tremendous amount of depth on a topic that I don't really think there's been a good book written on it before. So uh, thank you a lot, Stan. <laughs> Certainly oh. learned a lot with the book. Well, that was my intention, right? I don't expect MGM to come calling and uh, to, to put together the next Midway film about this stuff, but it's important. And I think that uh, people read it, they'll realize that, yeah, this is this is something that has been talked about. And I know anyone who's actually ever been on an airplane, you'll realize that it's a lot more than just stepping on that thing and turning the key. It's, it's a lot of work into it. And I'm glad you read it. I'm glad you liked it. And I'm glad that I could talk about it. So hopefully this uh, starts a bigger conversation in terms of naval aviation history. So this is the last question. I've asked a number of people a similar question because I think it's a absolutely haunting and quite possibly true analogy that, you know, should there be another hot war in the Pacific, there's only two players it's going to be between that's the United States and China. And the analogy that haunts me is the World War II analogy, where in World War II, the United States Navy was less prepared and probably less good across a whole range of aspects at the beginning. Um, and so the Japanese were able to sort of strike well and win a lot of initial key battles. But then it came down to attritional and we, the United States, 
you know, Phoenix rising from the ashes were just able to outproduce anything the Japanese could possibly throw against the wall. And I see a lot of parallels to a potential, not necessarily a World War III, but a attritional fight in the Pacific, Taiwan or some other uh, scenario where I think it's quite plausible that the United States Navy has, you know, better training on the outset like the Japanese did, better systems, better, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and are able to win that first initial set of strikes. But there's not a quick political resolution, which you know, I think is not a, a scenario that anyone should be banking on. Then in a nutritional fight, China has the shipbuilding capacity, has a far larger industrial base, possibly a greater political willingness to impose costs on its citizens. And I just don't see, I see a very scary uh, analogy where the United States Navy is to, the Imperial Japanese Navy is to World War II as the People's Liberation Army Navy is to the United States Navy to World War III slash the next hot war in the Pacific. Um, you know, speaking in a personal capacity, how valid or not do you think that is? Personal capacity, yes. Opinions, uh, views are my own here. But if you just look and, and see what they're doing in the PLA, I saw uh, an article in March 2023 that says China's Navy recruits 4,500 boys ages 15 to 16 for the PLA Navy's Youth Aviation School, seeking future pilots or aircraft carriers from junior high school. Then the South China Morning Post. Could it be inflated? I don't know, but I mean that's that's what they're that's what they're doing, right? And so you're right, Chase. I think you hit the nail on the head. If we're not careful, we're going to be caught in the same conundrum, kind of being caught on our heels uh, because I think that the you know, others are, are studying history and learning from history uh, more so than, than maybe maybe we are. I don't I don't know if that's true or not, but say that you have a very good point that if we go to a, a long, most wars, I think we go into them with the idea that this is going to be over very quickly. Sure, Putin thought that with Ukraine. Look at Vietnam, right? Look at look at World War One. Yeah, yep. the, the British thought they'd be home by Christmas. Every every uh, single. Every single war in history has been started uh, with God on your side and you'll be home by the holidays. And yes. uh, rarely has that yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah, so I think that is something that we as as United States has to consider, you know, that long-term uh, long-term war, that war of attrition and and prepare for that. So I just, I hope, and Lord knows, you know, to work on an F-35 is not the same as to work on an F-6 Hellcat, right? So the, the amount of, an order of magnitude more complex. Yes, yes. So that, I, I would hope that people are considering that as we figure out how to do this in the future. It's good stuff, and that's why I'm hoping that this book gets read by a lot that are sitting making those decisions and make some decisions based on history, not just based on what, they, what their gut's telling them. Yeah. Me too. Scary thoughts. And, you know, again, uh, thank you, Stan, for coming on. I'm going to put a link to Sustaining the Carrier War in the show notes. And uh, until next time, fair winds and following seas.